Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 33. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, one of the things that we like to do here is just preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we like to pick up a book of the Bible and work our way all the way through. And you know the amazing thing about that when we preach through books of the Bible is that we get to topics that are relevant to our everyday life. Isn't it amazing how you just read the Bible, this ancient text, some of the books of this Bible are over 3,000 years old, and it's still relevant to our lives today. This, this book was written almost 2,000 years ago, and it's still relevant to us to this day. In fact, I can't think of a more relevant text than the one we just read about marriage in many ways. We started talking about marriage last week when we did the first half of this passage, and so today we're just going to continue on our, our series on Ephesians. This is week 20-something as we, we work through this book, and today we get to talk about this one flesh union. Now, the scripture says that this is a profound mystery, and so I can't stand here before you today and expect to explain every aspect of what this means, because it was still a profound mystery to the one who was writing the text. But I do hope that we get to glimpse at the glory of God as we look at the power of marriage. And what a great week for us to talk about this one flesh union this week. It tells us that husbands are to love their wives like their own body. And when you talk about a one flesh union, it's a good week to have co kids because you're going to talk about sex. And so that's going to be happening a little bit later. And it's the perfect week for my own mother to be visiting. Uh, thanks for, for being here, Mom. Uh, we're going to get to talk about sex. Um, so what does it mean to become one flesh? The Greek word for flesh is the word sarx, and you've seen it throughout the scripture. It pops up pretty often. This word is a, a pretty common uh, word. It's one of the first words you learn when you're taking elementary Greek is because it shows up all the time, this word for flesh. And when it shows up a lot of times in the scripture, it's referring to like sinful desires, it's like fleshly desires. You've, you might recognize this from a verse in the book of Romans when he says, in Romans 7, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It, it's much like what we were talking about earlier in the liturgy when Ben was saying that we do things that we don't want to do, that we suffer under, under the effects of sin. As a believer, sin isn't just rebelling against God and doing whatever we want to do, but sin is oftentimes, I do the things I don't want to do. And so I'm giving in to these fleshly desires. And so that's one aspect of the word sarks, flesh. But there's this other aspect of the word flesh that we have in the Bible, uh, where we have it right here, where it says that we become one flesh. And so there's another aspect where it talks about flesh being a whole person. We become one person. Your flesh represents who you are. It's not just your skin, but it's who you are. And so we become one person together. 
So when Paul says that two will become one flesh, he's talking about this deep oneness that we experience on this side of heaven, only in marriage. Marriage is this deep, legal, permanent, exclusive commitment between two people. We symbolize this commitment through a variety of different ways. One of the ways that we symbolize this one flesh commitment, and you just have to think, this is God's design, but yet nations all over the globe do this type of thing, um, is we share a common last name oftentimes. Many times a spouse will drop their last name and pick up their husband's last name, or they'll, they'll adopt a last name together sometimes. I've seen that happen. But oftentimes when you see two people get married, they'll start sharing a common last name to, to represent that they have left their previous families and they have been married to one another. It's, it's just one of the ways that we symbolize it. It's nothing, that's morally neutral. If you didn't take your husband's last name, that's fine too. It's just one of those morally neutral things that symbolizes this. It's a culturally defined thing. Another thing that we might do to symbolize this oneness is we might combine our bank accounts and our assets. What's mine is now yours, and yours is mine. Marriage is this deep oneness between two people, and I'm talking about intimacy. No relationship on planet Earth has the potential for human intimacy like the relationship found in marriage. Now, having said that, I kind of need to give a caveat, because there's some cultural misunderstandings and myths to what I'm talking about, with the depth of insight and intimacy that we might be able to have in marriage. There's this old movie, who's seen this? Jerry Maguire. Has anybody seen Jerry Maguire back in the day? Oh man, it's like the 35 and older crew, sorry. Um, this is Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger. Have you heard of them? Okay, okay, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. Uh, this is an early 90s movie. He's, uh, Tom, Tom Cruise plays a... Um, an agent for, for Cuba Gooding Jr., I don't even, uh, for athletes, and, and really it ends up just being Cuba Gooding Jr., and I think he won the Academy Award uh, for his role in the movie. And uh, the movie kind of ends in this really dramatic scene, you might have seen this, where he comes in, and his, the family, it's like Christmas time, Tom Cruise walks in, and he's just like, shut up everyone, I'm giving a speech. And he just gives this full speech to Renee Zellweger in front of her family, and he says, you complete me. You complete me. And the whole thing ends after, you know, five minutes of speech, and Renee Zellweger is like, you had me at hello. So it's a very famous movie line, if you've heard that one before. But this idea of a relationship being something that completes you is a romanticized version of what marriage is. Because nowhere in Scripture does it say that your spouse completes you although it does say that you become one flesh with one another. Marriage does not complete you. It allows you to be fully you with another human being. It does not bring this missing piece of a puzzle that solves all the problems in your life. This is a false narrative. We oftentimes believe this false narrative. We believe that if we could just find that soulmate, that missing piece, I would be happy with myself and I would feel satisfied. We buy into this false narrative when we prioritize finding a spouse above all things, when we idolize it, when we obsess over it, when we think about that above all things and think that that will finally make me happy. 
And then when we get married, we start wondering if we married the wrong person, if we just found the wrong piece, because all of a sudden I'm not as satisfied as I thought I would be in marriage. We reinforce this cultural understanding, misunderstanding of marriage when we treat single people as if there's something wrong with them. Look, you can be a complete person and have never been married. I hope you can, because the most complete person that ever walked this planet was not married. Jesus Christ himself. Would you say that something was lacking in his life, that he just didn't have everything he needed? Well, absolutely not. He's fully man, fully God, living the perfect human experience, yet he never wed. So you can be a full, complete person apart from marriage. You don't need the one flesh relationship in order to be a full person. And some of us, that's really good news. You need to be reminded of that. Because marriage isn't about finding the missing piece to your soul, but it's about loving with someone who kind of juts out of the edges and, and rubs you the wrong way. And that's a sanctifying experience. If you find that perfect person that just meets you in every way, you're not being polished in any sort of way. And marriage is for polishing because in the covenant of marriage, you're stuck with someone. And you learn what it is to live with someone in an understanding way, and to love them as you love yourself. That would not be a challenge at all if marriage was just finding the other part of your puzzle. It would be easy. But marriage is not easy. If anything, it's hard. It's always hard. Everybody recognizes it hard. Marriage is not about completing another person, but it's about achieving a level of intimacy where you're fully known and fully loved at the same time. In every other relationship that we have on planet Earth, for the most part, maybe with the exception of like our parents, which we're going to talk about next week, there is this idea of perception management that's going on where we're trying to influence someone's opinion on you in one way or another. This is why I don't recommend that couples live together before they get married because I don't think you actually learn much by living together before you get married because it's still a trial run in many ways. You're still doing this, this perception management thing and then you might start acting completely different once you get married. Marriage means that you become one with another human. Isn't that amazing to think about that? Two, two humans becoming that entwined. That is a scary commitment. How could you possibly ever make that type of commitment to someone? Especially someone that you don't know that well. You must... When you're getting married, a lot of times we think like, oh, I feel like I know this person well enough. But you're saying that you're going to become one flesh with this person, that you're spending the rest of your life with them. The reality is no one knows anyone else well enough to make that type of commitment, to know that it's not going to end up poorly at some, in some way. And even if you did know someone that well, to say, okay, I'm willing to go into this one flesh union with this person, the reality is and this is a true reality, it's an important reality, is that people change, right? People change. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller puts this. He says that he's been married to five different women over the course of his life, and they've all been named Kathy Keller because she's changed over her years. 
I've been married for 12 years, and I feel like if you go back and introduce me to who I was 12 years ago, and we talk to who my wife was 12 years ago, it's a completely different couple. Hopefully for the better, for the most part, that we have changed, but we have changed. Our goals have changed, and who we are has changed, and how we relate has changed. So how do you possibly pick someone to be married to? If you're making that type of huge commitment, that oneness commitment, that's saying this is a deep, legal, binding commitment for the rest of my life, and this person's going to change, and there's no way I can know them well enough to be able to go into that knowing that everything's going to be perfect. How do you make that type of commitment to someone? And I think the answer that we find here is in the text. And Paul says it like this. He says that a husband should love his wife as his own body, just as Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church because we are his members. So when you're discerning who you should marry, this is the main question that you should be asking yourself if you're, if you're not married. And I know some people are trying to ask this question. But the question that you should be asking yourself is, are we heading in the same direction? Is this person and I, are we heading in the same direction? Are our priorities the same? Because if we're not heading in the same direction, what it says is that husband and wife become a body, and that, we must, that the husband must love his wife as his own body. The wife must love her husband as her own body because it's talking about us being members of Christ's body. So we're, uh, he's mixing these metaphors between saying that we've been married to Christ, but then also as members of the church, we're members of his body. And so we each have a different function in the body. But then he's kind of mixing them, saying they, they relate to one another. And so if you're discerning who to marry... You have to look and see and make sure you're going in the same direction. Because if you have one leg that wants to go in one direction and one leg that's going in the other direction, there's going to be separation in the body. But you have to look and see, do these pieces move in the same direction? Do they have the same goal? Are they looking in the same place? That's the number one thing that you have to look at. Because everything else is going to change. Everything else is going to change. When we first got married, my wife thought that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Imagine my surprise two or three years ago when she said, I want to go back and get my master's degree and, get, and have a career while we're in the middle of raising kids. But I love my wife, and we're heading in the same direction. I think that that's for her flourishing. She's changed. I think for the better, there's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom, but for her, that's, that's what worked. But we're heading in the same direction. Friends, the number one thing that you can look for in a potential spouse, and you, th if you're married already, you can appreciate this about your spouse, or you can use this for someone else. But the number one thing you can look for in a potential spouse is a heart that is teachable and repentant. If you're arguing about things, that's okay. If you have conflict, that's okay. As long as you're able to reconcile the conflict in a way that you're both able to humbly admit what you did and move forward together. I had a college pastor that taught me this really hard. He taught me this uh, very thoroughly. Um, and when I was dating Megan, I remember the moment I knew that I wanted to marry Megan. Now, I'm not sure that she knew that she wanted to marry me yet uh, because that was a much harder sell uh, in a lot of different ways. But I remember the moment when I knew I wanted to marry Megan. 
And we were sitting outside in my 05 Honda Civic. I've had two 05 Hondas. Last week I told you about the Honda Pilot. This was the Honda Civic in Louisville, Kentucky when I was, uh, when I was a grad student there. And Megan broke down and was very upset. And I don't remember if she was crying. That's not very, that's not very easy for me to tell you everything about her. But uh, she, she told me, that uh, she had mistakenly plagiarized on a project that she was doing in a group at, at school. And she felt terrible. I don't think that she even, if I remember the conversation correctly, maybe I'm just giving her more grace uh, now in retrospect, but if I remember correctly, it wasn't even an intentional thing. It was more like I submitted something as like a rough draft and then it, got, it ended up getting included in the final draft of what we were doing. And she said, I have to go tell my teacher and I deserve a zero, and I'm going to fail this class, and we're going to, have to do, I'm going to, have to do this again. That's a heart that's just humble and repentant and beautiful. And that's what I wanted more than anything. I wanted someone that was heading in the right direction. Not someone who had their life completely together. I wanted someone who knew that they didn't have their life put together and needed to repent and trust in Christ and follow after him. I don't care how beautiful and perfect the other person is for you today. Are they going to remain beautiful and perfect in 30 years? That's a really hard question to answer. If you're still single, you're looking to become married, there's this thing called infatuation that is not the same thing. And most of us have experienced this. It's that puppy dog kind of love. Where all you do, you stay up late thinking about her or him. And that's all you do. And you're, you're just so head over heels in love. And that can be really blinding. It can serve you poorly because that doesn't stick around for a lifetime. For anyone, it doesn't stick around. Physical attractiveness can also be very blinding. It can be a part of that puppy dog love. Physical attractiveness is important. I'm just going to put it that way. Because it's the thing that first draws you to another person oftentimes. But it's way too important for us oftentimes. Because it can be so blinding as we think about the potential of this person being a spouse for us. When you're choosing who to marry, you want to think, I would enjoy chilling on the couch with this person as an 80-year-old after my sex drive is long gone. Friendship and companionship are far more important than physical attractiveness. Marriage is not about feelings of infatuation. It's about becoming one flesh with another human being, this deep oneness, this intimacy that we talk about. But all of this is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Verse 32, it says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And when we become a Christian, we become part of the bride. We're made one with Jesus, and we get to enjoy all the benefits of calling him our groom. So what does that mean for those Christians who aren't a part of the church? For those Christians who aren't participating fully in a church? If it, if it means that when we become a Christian, we're, if the church is the bride of Christ, what about the Christians who aren't a part of a church? And I would just say that, biblically speaking, they're in a really dangerous place. Because there is no category in the Bible for Christians who aren't a part of a church. The church is assumed throughout the entire Bible. Because the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. We've Americanized and individualized this Christian experience. 
far too much. And you might say something like, well, I was hurt by the church, or churches get things so wrong, and those are true. Those things, I, can't, I, I can say I'm sorry, <laughs> because churches have gotten things wrong, and they have hurt people. They've done horrible things for millennia now, because churches are full of messed up people. And I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse the sins of churches, because a lot of it is inexcusable, and there are many churches that should probably just shut down and let people find a, a more healthy body to be a part of. But we endeavor to, here to be a healthy body of Christ. And the reality is that that healthy body of Christ is still going to be messed up, full of messed up sinners. And so we will probably wrong you. But that's part of being the bride of Christ as you get that polishing. That's part of being married to another human being because that other human being wrongs you. And so when you're committed in a local church, it's a sanctifying experience. And so I would encourage you to pursue membership in a local church, to be committed to a local church so that you can have that measure of experience and that measure of sanctification. And the reality is, is that Christ loves the church. That's the biggest defense here, is that Jesus loves the church. Who did he give up his life for? Who did he die for but the church? So that he might call her beautiful, so that he might wash her by his blood. Look, I don't care who you are, if you insult, if you insult my wife, I'm coming at you, all right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I felt like someone insulted my wife. I just fumed around the house. Like, I, I just felt like I was going to walk, I was just going to storm through a wall at any point. I was furious. I had to forgive. There were some things that happened in my own heart in that process. But how do we feel? How do you think that Christ feels when we insult his wife over and over again? He said, I love this thing so much. I love these messed up people so much. I'm willing to give up my life so that I might cleanse them with, the, with my blood. I love them. I, I give up everything for them. And so therefore, we also love the church. We commit ourselves to it. We commit ourselves to one another. As we walk through the rest of this passage, uh, I know I've, I've spent like half my time on this kind of weird introduction type thing, but um, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three components of oneness in marriage that reflects the profound mystery of being one with Christ. Three components of oneness in marriage that reflects this profound mystery of being one with Christ. And the first one is, oneness has this legal component. So we, we mentioned this earlier, but oneness means that we're joined legally. Marriage means that we're joined legally. I've been doing our taxes. Anybody, anybody get started on that? I'm, a, I, I, I'm one of those weird people that likes doing my taxes. Um, I don't know why. I like TurboTax. I like seeing, I like understanding how everything works. I, it's kind of weird that way. Um, we mar- we're married, we file jointly. We're legally married. I don't just do my taxes, I do my wife's taxes. We do the, those things together. We're, our lives are entwined in a way that would be exceedingly difficult to untangle. And that's how it's supposed to be. Divorce isn't supposed to be simple. When we get married, our lives get bound to one another. When you get married, one of the things that happens from a Christian perspective, is that you take on your spouse's debts and assets. You take on your spouse's debts and assets. Now, when Megan and I got married, we were too young and dumb to have many debts. All right, We, we got married just clean slate. We're, all of our debt has been our, our together making. Um, 
All of our assets have been our together making. We got married with nothing to our name except for a 98 Volvo and an 05 Honda Civic, okay? That's all we had. But I have a friend who got married who had just finished uh, medical school. And that friend had $200,000 worth of debt. And when they got married, that suddenly became her husband's debt as well. They were in debt together. Similarly, I have a friend who owned a home in Somerville. And when he got married, that became his wife's home as well in Somerville. They were doing quite well. This reflects our relationship with Christ. Because when we come to Christ, it's a little bit different though. Because when we come to Christ, we bring all the debt. He brings all the assets. And so what Christ did on the cross is he paid the price for our debt. He assumed our debt on our behalf and held it all there, and the price was fully paid. And then when we join the bride of Christ, when we become one in the church, and we get married to Christ in that way by joining the church, by trusting in his good name, because that's how you join the universal church is by trusting in Christ. So when we trust in Christ, we assume He doesn't only assume our debts, but we assume his righteousness. We take on his assets. So now, it's not like our debt is paid and we're a clean slate. It's like we have the riches of God. We've become one with him, which means we get to delight in the pleasures of the Trinity, delighting in one another throughout all eternity. We get to delight in everything that is true of what God owns, we own. He is conferred the assets over to us as well. We get to participate in all of this as we're covered in Christ's righteousness. The second aspect of oneness that this passage teaches us is that oneness has a progressive component. So oneness has a legal component where our debts are paid for and we take on the assets of Christ, but it also has this progressive component because that happens the second we become a Christian. And then we live, we walk into it each day of our life. And we learn what it means more and more for that to happen. The way that the scripture explains that is verse 31. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, the old fashioned way of saying this is leave and cleave, right? Have you heard that before? King James Version here, that we leave and cleave. And so, There's a way that that's true on our wedding day, that we have left and cleft our old family and joined this new family. We formed this new family. But then that's also got this progressive element to it. Just as we have left and cleft and become one with Christ, but yet our sin is not gone, we're still learning what it means to live into that. That's how it is in our relationship and our marriages. Last week, I told you the story about um, buying a new car, how I didn't want to buy a new car. Megan wanted to buy a new car. And when you look at our, the way our previous families did these things, um, Megan's family was very frugal. They, they did very well with, with managing their money in that way. But what they would do, and this is a very reasonable way to do it, I guess, I guess we're kind of doing something similar, but what they would do is would buy a new car, and then they would drive it until like, it was really old, and then they would buy another new car. It wasn't like they were getting new cars every other year. My family didn't ever buy anything new. 
We, my first car in 2003 was a 1988 Ford Ranger that I bought for $1,900, okay? Uh, it was parked outside of the Fred's Dollar Store. Has anybody ever seen a Fred's Dollar Store before? And that's, that's, I saw a sign. I was like, cool, I'm going to buy that. And we had to redo the engine and, and make it all work. And we just didn't buy new things like that. So when it comes to buying a new car, my family, my, my intuition says, I'm not buying a new car. That one's still rolling. And Megan's like, that one's getting kind of old. And it was. It's time to buy a new car. And so which one is right? Do we do it the way her family did it, or do we do the way that my family did it? Well, they're morally neutral. And we have to decide to do it the way our family is going to do it. And in that case, it looks a little bit more like Megan's family right now. It might not always. But we just have to decide what our family is going to do with this. And so when we come to disagreements in our marriages, oftentimes what we find is that we have not truly left and cleft to the new family. This is why marriage is such a beautiful opportunity. And I'm still doing this with my wife. We're 12 years in, still leaving and cleaving. Marriage is this beautiful opportunity for us to get to know another human being better than we even know anybody else. And it allows us to get to know ourselves oftentimes. If you had asked me why it is I don't want to get a new car, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. That took a lot of processing for me to get to the point to where it's like, well, my family did it this way. I was brought up this way. It feels right to me. It feels right to me, right? And so marriage is this opportunity for us to examine why we do the things that we do and to become a new family together. When we think about this with our relationship with Christ, it's very similar. It's progressive. When we become a Christian, we're united with Christ. We're legally declared that righteous person. But then we're constantly leaving our past way of life, the things that we wish that we did not do, behind. We're constantly still leaving that old way of life and cleaving to our new groom, which is, which is Jesus. But yet, Christ is so patient with us. Because what we end up doing, our old way of life was full of things that stole our attention, that stole our loves. If you want to think about it this way, our old way of life was full of these wayward lovers that we would have one night stands with. That would satisfy us for the moment, but were not genuinely satisfying. That would give us the semblance of marriage, make us feel like whole people for just a moment, but then would slip through our fingers. That was our old way of life. And we go back to it time and time again. Even after being legally declared righteous, being bound by Christ in marriage, we run back to the bottle. We run back to the pornography. We run back to the greed, the materialism. We run back to caring what other people think about us, being a showboat. We run back to this vanity over and over again. And what does Christ do? Does he hang his head low and say, there my, there my bride is again? No, he faithfully pursues after us. He never gives up. His love is unending. Though we run to other lovers that satisfy us for a moment, his love is unending. He comes after us. He continues to pursue us. He forgives us. He redeems us. When we have been faithless, he has been faithful. When you've been married long enough, you can start thinking your wife or your husband's thoughts before they think them. And I'm oftentimes given an opportunity to think this is how Megan would respond to this. And sometimes, 
Maybe not all the time, but sometimes it's better than how I would respond to things. So if my kids are going crazy, I can say, okay, I want to yell at them at this moment, but I'm going to think about Megan, and she would diffuse the situation by trying to get them to calm down in this way. And so I can kind of channel Megan in that moment. And so I have this progressive thing where I'm getting to know my wife so well that I can channel her in a certain situation. And that is how our relationship with Christ is also. It's got this progressive aspect that the more we experience his loving kindness, we're able to channel that in our relationships with others. The more we delight in what he has done for us, we're able to channel that in our relationship with others. That's what it means to be one with Christ. And so we might be given a situation where we say, this is how I would respond, but we might think, but this is how Christ has loved me, so I'm going to respond in this way instead. So instead of saying, I'm going to do the right thing because it will make God happy with me, that's not how we're saying it. We're saying, I'm going to do the right thing because God has loved me in this incredible kind of way. And so I'm going to share his love with others by loving them in that same kind of way. It's this deep oneness that we have with Christ that indwells in our hearts and it empowers us for good works. We don't do good works so that he will love us, but he has loved us, and then we imitate him and we do good works in turn. And la uh, lastly, oneness has a physical component to it. I told you I was talking about sex today. So sex is the pinnacle of what it means to be one flesh. It's the most literal representation of what it means to be one flesh. Sex is meant to be a covenant renewal ceremony where every time a married couple gets together to have sex, it's an opportunity for them to remember their wedding vows, to remember I lay down my life for your good, that I belong to you completely, and that your joy is my joy. It's an opportunity for us to be rebound over and over again, to be reminded of that. Sex is far more than just a physical act between two people for the propagation of the species. I was watching the Super Bowl. Was that last week or two weeks ago? That was last week. I was watching the Super Bowl last week and the halftime show, which was awesome. Uh, was on, but, but you know, who dropped from the ceiling but 50 Cent? It's like, I've seen this guy before. And uh, what does he say? He says, I, I'm, I'm into having sex. I ain't into making love. And that made me feel really sad for 50 and even more sad for any women that he had been with because that is not the way that you please someone in sex. That's not it. You see, he's reducing it to this thing that says, I'm going to get mine out of this. When sex is all about pleasing someone else and giving them that kind of joy. Sex should be this deeply intimate thing where you seek to know and be known completely by another human being. You see, it's just the pinnacle of intimacy in that kind of way. Sex outside of marriage says, I can be physically naked with you, but not emotionally naked. I'm not going to give you the commitment. I'm just going to give you the physical commitment, but not the emotional commitment. So you can still walk out at any time. I'm going to give you this physical commitment, but not this emotional bond. And so the act of sex is covenant renewal ceremony. It's meant to bond people together. And so when someone goes through a bad breakup after they've been having sex with their, with their significant other, 
One of the reasons why it's so bad is because they've been practicing the covenant renewal ceremony without the covenant. They've been bound time and time again. And that's a difficult thing. And of course it's bad. Of course it's hard. And we want to walk with you through that. If that's you, like Christ is faithful, even when we're faithless. So, so don't be ashamed. Know that Christ has paid that debt. But come back to him. Follow after him. And what you're doing is not helping you. Sex is meant to be this thing that's completely safe in marriage. People abuse it. It does detriment to the image that God has given us. Every story that we have, every Harvey Weinstein, every, uh, every Jeffrey Epstein does damage to the image, this beautiful image that God has given us that represents our intimacy with him. Sex is meant to be this thing that we share with one another. We know as we hold one another in our, in our arms that the only thing that can separate us is death that we're together completely, that I know she's not going to walk out on me. You, should, you can't have sex outside of marriage like this. You'll always have some aspect of performance being tied to it. Winston Smith, who's a counselor at CCEF, he puts it like this. I love how he puts this. He says, think about the mechanics of sex. And he's just talking about the intimacy, the, the, the deep intimacy that we might have here. Husband and wife disrobe allowing another to see them as few, if any, have ever seen them in their adult lives. There's literally nowhere to hide, no way to defend yourself from a critical eye or a violent hand. It would be devastating to be laughed at or criticized. You want to be physically valued, accepted, and embraced. You give the other the power to bless you with pleasure and warmth or to harm you in a terrible way. Can you see how safety and acceptance are important? Sex is all about intimacy. You have to have the utmost trust with someone. I don't see how you could do that without someone that you're bound to for life. How you could risk yourself like that, personally. Sex is about oneness. It's, it's this little meter on our marriage dashboards that kind of tells us how we're doing. Now, this isn't always, there's always a situation where, you know, it's, it's not going to, this isn't a perfect illustration, of course. And so there are situations where sex is not as given in a marriage. Um, but in general, sex is meant to be this, this, this meter on your dashboard that tells you how your marriage is doing. And I've heard this saying before that sex begins in the kitchen. And I'm not talking about like a shaggy, it wasn't me kind of sex begins in the kitchen. Okay? I'm talking about this idea of service to your spouse, that it starts with serving your spouse in every room of the house, caring for your spouse, being kind to your spouse. Sex is built on a foundation of caring, loving interactions in every room of the house. Friends, you don't get to be demanding. You don't get to be critical. You don't get to be angry and nagging and emotionally distant, and have a, a, a fantastic sex life. Your intimacy all day long culminates into this pinnacle. So do you want to improve your sex life? Improve your relationship. Listen. Maybe set aside your anger. You don't get to be demanding all day and then go, go into the bedroom and, and be have this beautiful sex life. No. 
You don't get to be distant and then expect to have sex in a way that's so powerful. No, these things reflect the intimacy. And somehow, this idea of being one flesh reflects our relationship with Christ. You grow in intimacy as time goes on, and each year becomes sweeter. I don't care how, how experienced someone is in the bedroom. There's nothing that could compare to an experienced married couple who's learned one another for years and years. Even as the, the sex becomes less often, the relationship becomes sweeter and deeper. And I'll tell you, I long for the day where I get to sit with my wife after having been married for 50 years or more. And we just share this bond that is so powerful and that it's beyond words because she knows everything about me. And I know everything about her. And all I can tell you is that this is the profound mystery of that is our relationship with Christ, except time's infinity, where throughout all eternity, he knows us completely, and we get to know him completely. We get to dive in to the riches of his glory and his kindness, and he lavishes it upon us time and time again. That is the profound mystery of that everything that we have in this life, even this thing that can bring me to tears when I think about my own spouse in that moment, pales. It's just a dim, it's a dim comparison to what we'll experience throughout all eternity with Christ, our, our Savior, our Lord, and our husband. To know him, to be known by him, to be loved more deeply and more deeply throughout all eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. Sex is this covenant renewal ceremony where we get to remember our covenant with one another. And every week we, we get to do another covenant renewal ceremony here together. Because we're reminded of the way that Christ formed a covenant with us. That his body was broken for us. And that's how a covenant was formed, is, a, is there was a sacrifice. His body was broken for us, even though we're the ones that deserve to have our bodies broken. His blood was spilled for us, even though we're the ones that deserve to have our blood spilled. We're the ones that didn't live up to our side of the covenant, but he lived up to it for us. And so each week he gives us a reminder of what that is meant to be. And we take of the bread and the juice to be reminded that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And so church, as we participate in that meal today, be reminded of what he has done and rejoice in it that we get to experience it throughout eternity because we get to experience his grace throughout eternity because of what he has done in this life. Father, as we come to you now and, and we rejoice with what you've done for us, help us to help us to meditate upon your loving kindness, your faithfulness. Help us to turn from our own selfish ways and to turn toward you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.